0: Hi, my name is Paul Podolsky, and I am the host of Things I Didn't Learn in School about many of the important lessons that we pick up after our formal education is over and turn out to be just as important. Enjoy! My guest today is Jim Levine, a dear friend and a real expert in dealing with challenging, traumatized children, families, and how to work with school districts. Jim began as a school teacher on the West Coast, came back East for his education, ultimately getting a PhD from Simmons College, and then founding a multidisciplinary practice in Western Massachusetts that has over 30 different clinicians working with it. And today, really can share with us what his decades of experience have yielded him in terms of dealing with traumatic families, traumatized families in general, and specifically reactive attachment disorder kids. So Jim, welcome. It's really my great pleasure to have Jim here. And Jim is a longtime friend. I don't know how long ago we met Jim, but quite some time back when we were actually first wrestling with some of the issues we had with Sonia.
1: That's right, Paul. I think it was about 15 years ago.
0: Yeah, so we've seen, we've watched our families grow up, and uh, Jim has really been at our side the whole time. More as a friend than as a professional. We had a team of professionals watching what was going on, and I thought that for a lot of the parents that are wrestling with kids like this, this would just be an unparalleled opportunity to get Jim's perspective. So Jim, why don't you describe a little bit the new project you have, because I think it's so relevant for the audience. It's really sort of a handbook for people to try to make sense of kids like this. What have you learned over the years and tried to make sense out of traumatized children but really traumatized people?
1: Sure. Well, the new book, as you said, is called uh, Children Gripped by Trauma. And it's focused on helping people who work in schools, but other counselors and certainly caregivers around not only understanding trauma, for which I think there's lots of information out there, but what I found lacking was information about what do you do and what do you say in certain situations and how do you coordinate and collaborate with other folks who are involved with the child interacting, dealing with a kid with trauma, whether it's reactive attachment disorder or something else, it requires more than just an individual approach. And so I think the the focus for me, sort of my wondering has always been, how do you bring people together to create a collective approach that would be most effective? And that's really the point of this book.
0: So could you take us inside that? That's fascinating because I know that Certainly when we were dealing with this, even though Marina and I were surrounded by great people like you, and when we had uh, professionals we, we leaned on, there was also times we really felt incredibly isolating. And now sure. through the power of social media, you know, I look at these discussion groups on Facebook, for instance, for uh, reactive attachment disorder parents. And while each case is different, And the kids come on a spectrum, and families do too. There is a real sense of isolation and feeling not supported, particularly with really severely traumatized kids and their uh, behaviors. So, describe to us a little bit, you know, what that would look like. What do you see? What do you think good looks like relative to that model that you often bump up against?
1: Well, the book brings out a specific model for collaborating, and planning, which would include a parent or a caregiver. It will include teachers, counselors, administrators in a school, but it will also include a child. And who often gets left out of that process is the child and his or her input. But in terms of the isolation factor, I think part of it is that culturally we're expected to just deal with it and figure it out on our own. And as you well know that when you, that when you're raising a child with something like reactive attachment disorder, it's not only isolating, it's stressful and you can feel like as mm-hmm. though you're drowning. Mm-hmm. And so the purpose is, is not only support, but to have a planful place to get together, problem solve. And by having a plan of action, it tends to lower that sense of stress and isolation. And that's really, again, part of the model and that's part of what's built into creating the model. And when
0: you're trying to create that, I know when we were dealing with it, we felt, frankly, a lot of skepticism that we were just making things up and was so any different than healthy functioning kids. So where do you see the communication breaking down in that effort to create a supportive network around the traumatized child?
1: Well, I think you just named it, and certainly it was a lived experience for you, Paul, that because you had a child who could present as sort of typical, if you will, that people may have questioned, and this happens so often in our culture, which is essentially what is it the parent or parents or caregivers are doing wrong, which of course only creates and exacerbates that sense of of isolation. So part of it is information to people. And not just diagnostic information, but also information that describes clearly the behavior and what you're dealing with. And I think that what can be useful in working with a school district, if it's a good school district, is they will see some of the same behaviors. Not always. And certainly for kids with RAD, that's not always how it works. Kids may act well in school, hold it together, and then fall apart at home. But the point is is that caregivers need to find ways to reach out to connect and to have people really understand what that behavior looks like that they're seeing at home. Otherwise you'll just constantly be questioned about the the realness of what you're dealing with.
0: With these kids themselves it seems like there's a parent education piece to it, like letting the parents really understand what they deal with. And then there is the school piece, which is, it's a lot of work to go through that. And I know that when I tried educating the local elementary school about it, I would describe them as low on their list of priorities. So how do you break through that? How do you facilitate that in terms of educating the the parents and the schools? How long does it take? What's that trajectory like?
1: Well, there's certainly no set answer to that because one of the things we know about any sort of psychological struggle is that it is so child-specific. And so I always get concerned when I see sort of top-down approaches that don't make sense of individual circumstances. So that said, I think the trajectory starts with the parents or the caregiver. And so you know what you're seeing. You know what you were struggling with. And then how do you get other professionals on board to, again, by describing the behaviors you see, how do you get them on board to help you? In terms of the trajectory with the school, I see it as a different variable. And it was a different variable for you, Paul, because I think it was a bit of a struggle to get them on board. I'm not sure they entirely believed that you had a child struggling as much as she was. Yep. So I think it really depends on the school personnel. I think it depends on what they observe. So again, you'll sometimes see this with children with Tourette's who will hold back their tics during the school day and then will come home and lurch and scream and writhe. But the school never saw it. So for them, it may be, really? This child has Tourette syndrome. So I think the trajectory really depends on what they see firsthand. Sonia was good at hiding that from the school.
0: Right. And so if you're, in other words, do you help a parent Take the Tourette's example, or any other example where the child is presenting differently at home in the school. How does that work? Do you try to educate the school? Do you find your school district is pretty open to that because you guys have been working there for decades? Or, you know, what advice would you have for parents who are wrestling with this and not getting the response that they would hope for?
1: Yeah, it's a wonderful question. Again, it runs on a continuum. There are schools that will respond well. If it is not open, we're not responding well, at least initially, then the question is, there's a wonderful theory in family therapy. And really what it speaks to is the idea that you always try to join a system through its weakest link. So the weakest link in this situation, I think weak is the, the wrong term, but what is the open link, if you will? And so it may be the school counselor. So rather than meeting with an IEP team, for example, it may be that a parent is setting up a time just to describe the behavior to the school counselor, whether it's a school psychologist, the school social worker, whatever that counselor is. If that isn't successful, then I often suggest to parents that they get a clinician that they're working with as a family with a release signed to have them go in and speak with the school because it can be so frustrating for so many parents to keep going to the school and and basically hitting a a brick wall. So, again, many schools are wide open. They're more than eager to help parents, but it runs the gamut. So, again, with a lack of success in that way, that's sort of my uh, sequence, which is try to reach the person who would be most helpful, special educator, a particular administrator, whoever it is, and if not, let a clinician go in and try to advocate on your behalf.
0: Good, helpful let's move off the school for a little bit for the parents that you're dealing with. So let's talk about it in general and then zoom in on, on some of the specifics, particularly the RAD. So I had one friend tell me once that I asked him how many kids he had. And he said that he had four kids, but that wasn't the way to count it. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, sometimes one kid is the work of like half a kid. And sometimes one kid is the work of four kids. And one of his kids had Bipolar. That was his kid that required much more work than the rest of the kids. So in terms of maybe take us through, what is your first signs if a a family is approaching you? What is your first signs when you're looking at a kid that there's some sort of trauma there? And then what is your advice for a parent for sort of setting themselves up for this? I know for Marina and I, it was a multi-decade journey. There was a huge financial hit. It put yeah. our marriage under strain, these things I spoke about in the book. It was challenging socially uh, because people you know, wondered what was up with our family. So what does it look like, and how do you talk through this with a family?
1: Let me start with the latter piece, Paul, about what would I, what would someone in my position say to a family? And then we can certainly talk more about what trauma looks like. But in terms of the family, the initial piece is normalizing what's going on. So often when I talk to parents, they feel as though they're crazy, that because other people aren't validating their experience because they may not be seeing the behavior, that therefore, again, as I said earlier, there, somehow there's a suspicion that there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with the parent, which is isolating and stressful and certainly creates strains in relationships which is exactly what you noted in the book. So part of what my role is, is to help the family understand what it is they're dealing with, what it might be called. So I've met with so many families who've been able to describe really difficult behaviors they've dealt with over the years, but they never had a name for it. Mm. Or they had a name, but didn't really understand what it meant. So The purpose of that is not just for academic hair splitting. It's not just so they have a label. It's so that they can begin to make sense of their role in it. There is so much self-blame that goes on in parenting. I can't imagine that anyone who's been a parent hasn't gone through, no matter how healthy your children, doesn't go through some phase of, oh, my goodness, you know, I did this wrong or I could have done this better. And so by helping people understand what's in front of them, it allows them to step back a little and to stop blaming themselves, hopefully stop blaming their partner, and then begin to focus on precisely what the child needs and what the family needs to survive. Oftentimes when there's a child, you know, your friends comment about one child is worth many more in terms of the amount of effort. But think about the implication of that the implication for other siblings, the implication for a marriage, a partnership. So again, it's helping people see not only the micro issue of the child's behavior, the child's psychological status, but also the family as a larger system. And how can you, as the parent, sort of work on all of those ends and take care of yourself at the same time?
0: Can you jump into the first part of it? So when you're seeing the parent comes in, there's a child, what are some of the things that you're looking at right away? Because some people, you know, with the RAD thing, some people are dealing with very, very young children. And I see them also say, hey, the child is doing X and Y and Z. This seems a little bit concerning. Is it? And they'll, you know, they'll reach out. So as a clinician who is just a huge sample size, if you're seeing kids come in, what are some of the things that suggest that you're dealing with a more traumatized child?
1: So I would make some distinction between reactive attachment and other forms of trauma. I mean, they certainly fall along a similar spectrum and there's overlap, but children can present very differently with one versus the other. So if a child's coming in with RAD, then what I'm often looking at is, in, in simple terms, is what is the attachment like? I mean, we know by definition that it's a deviation from, not the word I like, but some sort of deviation from a typical attachment, any kind of secure attachment. So one of the things I'm looking for is how does the child attach to the parent and how does the parent attach to the child? So for me, that's a critical piece of the observation. Does the child go to the parent if he or she isn't feeling well? What does that look like? Do they, coming into a strange office like my place, do they cling to the parents somewhat, you know, in a, in a developmentally typical way. If you'll allow me a small tangent, Paul, Great. Um, in the autism world, of which we we see many, many people here with autism and do a ton of evaluations, and one of the things that happened for years is that when there was that lack of reciprocal attachment, which is sort of part and parcel of early autism, it was often seen as a fault of the parents. And of course, everyone may remember the term cold mothering, which was a highly pejorative phrase uh, that Bruno Betelheim came up with. And what it essentially said is when there was a lack of connection between parent and child, the problem was the parent. And only later, when people did more observational studies, did they realize that the lack of attachment, in fact, wasn't coming from the parent. The lack of attachment was coming from the child. And you can imagine the relief, the air that went out of the balloon when people realize I didn't screw up my child. I've been trying to be there, to be warm, to nurture, to hold, to touch. And it's similar with reactive attachment, that oftentimes, again, parents get blamed when the lack of attachment comes through the child. So that's what I'm looking for in the observation. And I'm also wondering that in spite of that lack of attachment coming through the child, how does the caregiver respond? So does the caregiver, for example, pull away in frustration or anger or through anxiety, or does that person stay in there? So part of my task, again, is to help the parent, the caregiver, make sense of that pattern and find ways to take care of themselves so that they can stay present for that child, which. For some kids with reactive attachment, they will come along. There are other kids more severely on that spectrum, as you noted, and that was certainly true for Sonia. But for some kids with reactive attachment, it simply takes longer and it comes more in fits and starts.
0: you know my perception not being a specialist, just being a dad is that there's been an opening of awareness, I would say of challenge personal challenges that people could have. I think that you know twenty years ago autism. Wasn't or Asperger's wasn't a very common term. Now it's common. Um, all sorts of traumas that people the the impact in in the broader society. It's 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 more widely recognized. And and perhaps one day I don't think Rad is at that level now, but perhaps one day Rad will be at that level. Some of these things seem much more amenable to improvement, and others not. And I think that for any parent that is trying to raise a kid like this, this is the question that they're asking really is, you know, is there any light at the end of the tunnel? And I know in Marina's work that she sees a huge range of outcome. How do you make sense of this as a clinician, seeing this, what people respond, what people don't, is there anything predictive that you can see, or is it just sort of, you got to keep trying, hope that there's going to be light at the end of the tunnel and, you know, you'll find out when you find out.
1: That's a hard question, Paul, because I would like to say that there is something predictive and there isn't. There's no specific set of variables that I could point to that say this child will be okay and this child won't be. So what I'm looking for, I I think that the skill set that is most required, certainly on the clinical side, is to be a very astute observer. So it's not always the intervention. It's how well you observe the implication or the effect of that intervention. And so I'm more able to see where things are going if I offer some recommendations to families and they try them and I can see the outcome of what they tried, if they're able to articulate what worked and what did not work. That creates a foundation for us to build on. But to say that there's a specific predictive kind of algorithm for this, it really doesn't exist.
0: Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it? And what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast, and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. When somebody's struggling with a kid, there is a very... uh... Important point that certainly with Rad that we came to with Sony that we describe in the book where we decided to take her out of our home. Mm-hmm. And when a professional first described that to me, I was aghast even at the suggestion. You know, Sony was just nine years old. Right. I didn't even know what residential treatment was. And since then I've discovered as many Rad parents have that there's a whole network of these throughout the country to deal with some of these kids. And I think it's, it's controversial. There's been an issue in adoption of something called rehoming, which is, you know, removing the kid from your home.
1: Right. These are
0: very, very delicate, controversial issues. But what our specific case, I think that removing Sonia from her home was a lifesaver for the rest of the family. You mentioned it early on. How do you wrestle with that when you're trying to help advise somebody through that?
1: It is a struggle I've never met, ever a caregiver who, if if the discussion even came up about a more intensive placement, whether it's residential or a day placement, where it didn't cause concern, self-blame, worry, all of those things, I think the way I try to frame it is that it's a continuum of care model. And it is really no different than medically, that you might go to see the pediatrician or the family doc for something. And if it's a more serious issue, you may go to urgent care and you might have to go to the emergency department if it's something that needs to be addressed quickly and there's no time. And then if it's more acute than that and also something that's gonna last longer, you go into the hospital. And so I do tend to see a parallel there that this is a continuum of care model and therefore it makes sense that if a child simply can't exist in a family and the hope always is that this is not only the last resort, but something that happens infrequently. Uh, and it did for you, which is that at that point, it's. It, I'm hoping it's less about self-blame for the family and more about this is what's best for this child right now. And I think in your situation, it absolutely was. As hard as it was for you and Marina you know that as friends, you had our backing completely because it was the right thing for all of you, including her.
0: Um, And what were, I mean, for us, you know, we had our own indications when you're looking at a family and you're saying, okay, it's time to go to this more acute type of treatment, the equivalent of the hospital. I imagine one of the obvious things would be, you know, is the child a threat to themselves. But outside of that, which, Probably a lot of people recognize what are some of the other lines, if you will, that once crossed, that's an indication that it is time to take that step or consider taking that step?
1: Well, that's certainly a primary one. Anything having to do with safety and health and well-being, those are things that are are always paramount. So the
0: safety of other people in the family, too.
1: Absolutely. The safety of everyone in the home. And in some situations, there are questions about safety to a sibling. Or to an infant sibling, those kinds of things. We, you know, I've had situations like that over the years. So clearly, safety is a family based term, not just that specific child. So, yes, safety is an issue, especially if there's ongoing self harm. That's certainly a factor. But there's also just the factor of sort of overall well being, I think. So, for example, I had a family where the child ran away frequently. And of course that is a safety issue, but this was a child that they knew would stay safe when she ran away. And yet they simply felt that they couldn't maintain as a family, take care of their other children. When this child was constantly running away, really over very little, there was little stimulus to that happening. And so for them, it was leading to family breakdown and the child was not successful not only at home, but wasn't doing well in school, wasn't doing well socially, wasn't really doing well in any realm of her life. And so again, going back to that idea of a continuum of care, a continuum of service model, if a child is unsuccessful in all those realms, it's typically an indicator that they may need a higher level of care, hopefully temporary, but not always.
0: So that raises two important questions. One of them is financial, and then the other thing is the success of these, these interventions. If you're lucky enough to have health insurance and the primary care physician, to carry your metaphor forward, says, hey, we need to send you to the hospital, while there's co-pays, et cetera, it's generally covered. Whereas the mental health support for things like residential treatment, certainly in our case, was non-existent. You might know much better what it's like with a broader sample set, but if you come to that stage or if you're dealing with a child that has these needs where you almost need to effectively equip your home as if it's residential treatment, the financial burdens can just be massive. But the support for this in terms of insurance, et cetera, is still relatively limited, at least that's my perception. Does that seem accurate?
1: It really ranges. And I think, you know, the variable in the story is often whether or not the school will participate in paying. So it's not only about insurance. It may be that the school district will pay for the educational component of a, of a placement. Um, so there are just so many factors to that. And this is where having an advocate is so essential. So there are people who, at least in this region, are called 766 because Chapter 766 is the state version of special education law. And they're called 766 advocates. And families reach out to them and they help. They look at the child, they read all the reports, and they then help the family advocate for what the child and the family needs. It's certainly not 100%, but I've seen many families with little to no insurance who have managed to get their children placed because it was warranted. So again, not a guarantee, but the idea that you're not doing it alone, that you have people working with you, trying to get your family physician on board. I've had pediatricians who have advocated fiercely for kids to get a higher level of care. And I've seen some relatively good success with that. And-
0: what about the success of these programs? So at the end of it, we had Sonia and three different programs. Right. And it kept her safe. That was a plus, I think, physically and emotionally. And, I, and we didn't feel like we could provide that at home. But in terms of now that she's an adult, and the first podcast that I did on the series was actually a conversation with her, she was pretty open about the fact that none of those treatments really – Changed her that much. And that was our experience as parents that they kind of scratched the surface, but the core issues came from motivation from her. And if that motivation wasn't there, it was difficult to get any more serious change. And, you know, I, I mentioned on the previous podcast, you know, she's now in the criminal justice system trying to clear that up. But that was the type of thing that we'd been very worried about at the outset. And in our case, it came to pass. So maybe there's no answer to this, but kids you see in residential uh, treatment, is there any evidence about how it works out on average and you know what type of kids respond better to it or worse?
1: So I haven't seen hard data on that, Paul, so I don't think I could speak well to it. The other concern I would have is that some of the research is done by the programs themselves. Nice. And so I would... that somewhat biased research so what I would tend to do is look more to the parents or caregivers to ask their impression of what the program was like and as you did with Sonia which is to also ask the child now one of the confounding factors in something like rad is that self-awareness is not always that high And when we talk about social-emotional learning, for example, in schools, that's a very big topic right now is kids are coming back to school uh, from the pandemic or continuing remote learning. And in SEL, what is really seen as the primary, sort of the foundational step is self-awareness. So what we're looking at is self-awareness to self-management. Well, you can't manage yourself if you're really not aware of yourself. And then it's very difficult to be aware of other people if you can barely make sense of what you're doing. And therefore, you can't manage relationships well, and it leads to poor decision making. So, those are the five steps that are often talked about as primary in social emotional learning. So, in RAD specifically, I've seen a number of kids who really their self awareness, their ability to reflect clearly, has been somewhat limited. It, it ranges, of course. But for for some, it's been limited. Therefore, their input as to whether the treatment worked can be a little bit suspect. Now, I don't mean to sound judgmental or to diminish what children themselves bring to the table. I tend to honor that greatly. But I also know that if somebody constitutionally lacks self-awareness, it is difficult for them to articulate what has worked and what hasn't worked. Therefore, I'm looking again to the broader environment. That said, I've seen kids come out of residential treatment who've done pretty well, actually. They learned some of the social interaction skills, some of the social awareness, self-management skills. And I wouldn't diminish what you mentioned about safety, because, again, if safety was the primary cause for going into residential treatment, it's not a small matter that the child stays safe through their adolescence. So again, I wish I could offer you a very clear kind of predictive, this sort of child will do well. All I can tell you is that children who tend to be more self-aware will tend to do better.
0: Yep, that makes sense. Let's zoom out for a little bit. You've been at this for decades. How are we doing in terms of a society, in terms of awareness of mental illness in kids and providing the right support
1: for success? I think we continue to struggle mightily, frankly. I think there's greater awareness. You certainly can talk about trauma now and everybody will nod their heads. And in schools right now, it's quite current to talk about trauma-informed, to be a trauma-informed school district. So the term trauma is much more accepted, much more widely seen. People talk about their trauma now in ways that certainly didn't happen even a decade ago, never mind a generation ago. That said, what I find is that while there's awareness that trauma exists and it's out there and that people have it, there's a lack of knowledge about what do you actually do. Certainly in schools my work is all about trying to move from trauma-informed to trauma-competent. And while that may sound a bit trite, I mean it with great sincerity that it's not just helpful to be informed. You have to be competent in dealing with it. Otherwise, you're talking about a situation that's unfolding under your nose without realizing really what you're seeing or what you should do. So societally, I mean, certainly in terms of schools, I see some districts that handle it very well, that are very committed, but we still have a long, long way to go.
0: Which is maybe a good uh, segue into your next project. This one you said is tentatively titled Tending to Trauma. What's that about? What are you trying to share there?
1: Well, Tending to Trauma, which is coming later, is uh, slightly different, has a different focus. And that is an audio book where I'm interviewing clinicians all over the country and potentially all over the world in how they manage themselves in dealing with trauma cases. Mm-hmm. Clinicians can be overwhelmed now with the number of people coming in with trauma. And certainly that's only been increasing due to the pandemic and death and illness and poverty and job loss, all of the factors we know. So clinicians are literally getting swallowed up by people dealing with traumatic circumstances. So the point of the book is to look at what are the coping mechanisms that they bring to their work, and then hopefully the corollary would be how do we extrapolate from those skills, those coping methods that all of us could use when we're dealing with trauma. So that's really the purpose of this next project.
0: And for you, Jim, how do you deal with this? And that if you're trying to advise parents who are in the situation, what are some of your... That's yes, awesome. I
1: mean <laughs> I think that in writing the book, it certainly raises my own you know questions about what has motivated me to do this, and I think part of it goes back to some of the questions you've already raised, Paul, which is how do I, as a clinician who deals with traumatic circumstances on literally a daily basis, how do I make sure that I don't become isolated in my work? It's absolutely critical, so family friends, time doing fun things, exercise, which I probably recommend 5,000 times a year to people, which is probably the best antidote to stress and anxiety better than any other single intervention. So putting all those things together is how I manage. I find that, that spending time with friends and just enjoying life in terms of laughter and being active really goes such a long way And it's what I recommend to clinicians and to families. What are your social supports? And so I rely on them as much as anyone else.
0: Human human touch to to the experience from an expert. And then with rad families, that can pose such a challenge just because the kids never really let up. And they look at, you know, opportunities like that potentially as letting down your guard and striking. But would your advice, I'm guessing, would just be to try to structure it as best you can while keeping the child safe.
1: That's exactly correct. And, you know, my impression from the outside is in many ways is that's how you and Marina did it, is you might go and exercise and Marina would be home. And then Marina might go do something and you would be home with Sonia and you would find ways that work for you as well as it could work. And that's where the question of social networks really, those questions really do come in. Are there grandparents who can step in and really can handle it? Are there aunts and uncles? Are there neighbors? Does there happen to be a babysitter, college student, whatever, of someone who really has the kind of wherewithal to manage this? And so you know how difficult it is to find caregivers for a child with reactive attachment. It is so much more challenging than it is for a typical parent. Yet opportunities often do exist, and it's a matter of finding them. When we can't find them, then that's when I see parents really begin to crash and burn.
0: Makes sense. So for families dealing with clinicians telling them, okay, your child has XYZ mental illness, then then again, a subgroup around RAD. What's your first piece of advice? about how to sort of digest a diagnosis like that. In other words, if you're given a diagnosis of some sort of terrible medical thing, I think that people have more of a structure about what that's like. So, you know, what is your, when you're sharing that news with people and they're got that road ahead of them, what are you saying with them? And then I'd also ask, you know, do you have, I always like to give all guests, a, you know, if you have any questions
1: for me. Yeah. So your question was, how would I tell families that they had a child with reactive attachment disorder? Yeah.
0: And what would you say in terms of like, this is something you're going to be dealing with. Here are my top three pieces of advice. I'm getting so into the conversation, like keep yourself safe, keep the family safe, take care of yourself, all these types of things. But what does that conversation look like?
1: Yeah. um, It is a very sensitive, obviously. It's a sensitive and delicate conversation. And I think a lot of it genuinely comes down to the skill of the clinician someone who is sort of a more cold diagnostician who just throws out a phrase and those people do exist fortunately there are fewer of them a fewer of them now but that of course will just overwhelm the family so my job has you know i've had to tell families that their kids had severe developmental issues that they had Whether it was autism as a neurodevelopmental disorder, whether they had childhood schizophrenia. I mean, I've had to tell parents all kinds of difficult diagnoses. And the only thing I can say is that being there for them, being kind, being supportive, these sound so trite, but they're not. They matter so much in the moment. And what I try to do for families is let them know that I'm not going away, that I will be here as a support because they will need it. I also try to give them a sense of sort of the spectrum of what that diagnosis might look like. So telling a parent that their child has uh, reactive attachment, first of all, it's rarely a surprise because by the time they come to me, they're the ones that are articulating the lack of attachment, some of the behaviors that go with it, You know, in official terms, there's inhibited and disinhibited types. The parents describe it perfectly in most cases. Therefore, when I share what I see going on, I often find some relief from people to know that there's a name for it, to know that they haven't necessarily just done something wrong. Again, the whole self blame piece that's built into parenting. So while it's a very delicate, difficult conversation, I often find Underneath it is some relief for parents as well.
0: well let me just—I promised it would be the last two questions, but I just want to inject one more here. Sure. One of the things that I've seen come up in a lot of the parenting websites, the chat rooms, is yeah. child protective services being called on them. So the you know one of the things with rad kids is is they're, they're not honest reporters, and so in an effort to further stir up the pot, they will accuse the parents of you know often. Pretty terrible stuff. And I think in many states, is my understanding is that people are then obligated to respond. Have you dealt with that? And what are your thoughts on it?
1: I mean, as a group, we, I certainly have. And as a group, we certainly have. I mean, we're a large group. We see a ton of kids and families. So yes, we've certainly seen it. And not only necessarily with kids diagnosed with, with rad. But first of all, yes, In people are mandated reporters so that if a child reports any kind of abuse, real or not, the Department of Children and Families is required to go and investigate. Now, they may not further investigate after they do their initial screening, but they are required to at least check into it, which I understand from a safety perspective. You don't know from the outside what's real and what isn't. But for me, this goes back, Paul, to the issue, the variable we talked about earlier around safety. That if a child is making a claim, and again, I want to stress because in so, so many situations, when a child makes a claim, it's real. So I certainly don't want to sort of start with the premise that the child is making something up. But in the context of RAD, it certainly does happen. And in the context of kids with severe trauma, it does happen. Mm -hmm. So, it raises the question of what coping skills does that child have? So why did the child need to report something that didn't happen? Why did they have to report they were being hurt or abused in some other way? So we've talked a lot today about sort of the more extreme end of the continuum and what happens when kids need to go into residential treatment, for example, because that's what happened for Sonia. But for many kids, that's not the case. And for many, they can learn the skills to cope differently, to learn the terminology to say, I'm really pissed off right now, as opposed to, I'm going to call the police and say, you just beat me. So what I'm looking at is what is the capacity of the child to develop those skills? And what I share with parents is, those are the things we're going to look at. This is not necessarily a death sentence. And I don't want parents to always start at the most extreme end of the continuum. But again, that's based on the behaviors they're seeing. So if there's nothing else I stress from this conversation today, there are many, many kids who get better. They improve. It's not a cure, but they get better. They learn to cope. They learn to manage themselves and social interactions. And a smaller proportion of kids don't. And unfortunately, sadly, that's exactly what you dealt with.
0: Got it. Well, thank you. You've been so, so generous with your time. Before I part, any, any questions for me, Jim?
1: Absolutely. I have, I have okay. two, Paul. <laughs> it, it seems only fair that I would get to ask you some questions too. And yes. one of them, of course, is, I know you talk about this a bit in the book, but just in brief, what do you think this was like for your son? That's such a good question.
0: On the one hand, it was much less intense than it was for Marina and I for two reasons. First of all, he and Sonia get along. Mm -hmm. And they they did brother and sister stuff together, actually kind of a charming way. They went skiing together. They went sledding. They did hikes. They did, they cooked together. So they had this kind of sweet relationship, actually, that in part was just their personalities. They're very opposite, but the two of them clicked. And in part, I think it's classic rad stuff, which is that Sasha was not an authority figure at all. Right. And so she rarely targeted him. She did target him, but rarely and certainly not as intensely as she did Marina. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, I think that dealing with somebody who is struggling with those behaviors certainly left its mark on Sasha. Yeah. And I think that he's been quite cautious in his relationships with people, because being close to that and seeing how intense it is to share space with somebody that is struggling with basic issues of telling the truth, of keeping themselves and others around them safe, that left its mark with him. And I see a conservatism on his part in terms of who he's willing to spend time with, and particularly who he's really willing to get into a very close relationship with. So on the one hand, It was a much milder reaction, but on the other hand, it really left its stamp.
1: Yeah, that makes great sense. And frankly, from the outside, as a friend to the family, that's exactly what I saw. I mean, that is a very sweet guy. I I can't say kid because he's not a kid anymore, but I see the cautiousness of him. So that actually is a, a wonderful observation, And I guess really my last question is, what's your next project? I know you're working on a novel, but beyond that, do you plan to do more writing and thinking about reactive attachment? Or what's what's your thought?
0: My thought is to spread the word about the existing book because I think it's resonated with reactive attachment disorder families. But really what I've seen is people come out of the woodwork because it's made them feel comfortable revealing that they have a challenging member of their family, not necessarily rat. And I've had people come and say, you know, my sibling was schizophrenic. This was the thing we dealt with at home. Or I had a severely autistic brother or an alcoholic or all these types of things. There's a lot of families, which is, you would know as a professional, but I wasn't aware of being in a different field. That by letting down my guard a little bit and saying, hey, this is what we're dealing with, that's come out. And so part of what I want to do is spread the word about this book. And that's what this podcast, I think, is a part of, to open up that world and make it accessible to people. But I do want to write full time, and I want to write about some things other than Brad. Um, (laughs) So the next book is fiction as opposed to nonfiction. And more has to do with some of the stuff I did in my professional life, which is around Russia and China and financial markets, and trying to explain that world, which I think people understand about as well as the typical person understands RAD. So (laughs) that's my my hope.
1: (laughs) That's great, Paul. I look forward to reading that novel, believe me.